0: You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. Coming up, planet Earth is over four and a half billion years young. A Wisconsin geologist joins the show for a look at contemplating deep time and how it can affect the way we think about the world we live on. Now it's time for Wisconsin Life. Here's producer Tyler Ditter with a story about a Wisconsin couple falling in love.
1: Prior to 1972, girls didn't always have the opportunity to play sports at school. But the passage of Title IX changed that. It paved the way for Manitowoc's Roncalli Girls basketball team to become the sport's first state champions in 1975. Two former teammates talked with one another about that experience as part of a StoryCorps mobile tour stop in Green Bay, Wisconsin.
2: My name is Barb Barronbrook-Luring. I am 65 years old. I am Sue Tringali Johnson. <laughs> I am 66. So we grew up in Manitowoc, Wisconsin. and. Our city recreation department did have organized girls basketball teams for um, grade school and high school. But at that point in time, we were playing, knowing we are going to be going into high school, uh, where there were no sports teams for girls. <laughs> But tada!
3: enter the passage of Title IX, the fact that our private high school, Manitowoc Roncalli, received public assistance for lunches, which meant they were getting public assistance, so they would have to begin offering sports for girls, too. So when we got to school, we found out
2: that we were going to have a basketball team. We felt like we won the lottery. In the summer of 1972, the budgets were already done, and all the money, of course, was at that point pledged to the boys' sports teams. So that meant the budget for the girls was zero, right? Nothing. Uh, Assistant coach Sue Schneider, who was Her
3: mom was like an excellent seamstress. She came to a practice one night, and she measured each of us girls and put together a pair of polyester navy blue shorts
2: that she custom sewed for each of us so the pants are taken care of. The school did step up a little bit and ordered light blue polyester sleeveless tops with these giant numbers on them and no school name. But we had, now we had shorts, our sleeveless tops with the giant numbers, so we were gonna be able to play. And actually, we finished our high school season with an eight and three record. Pretty good for a first season. So our second season, uh, we were undefeated. Officially, we did win. Uh, sectionals, but we really wanted a full state tournament like the boys had, right? Not stopping at regionals. And then it changed because then we found out for the 1974-75 season when I was a senior and you're a junior, Mm -hmm. just in time, right? (laughs) Just in time. For me, they announced that there'd be the first tournament for girls in the state of Wisconsin. And we did actually make it to the state tournament, which was February 22nd,
3: 1975. So we won our semifinal game against Milwaukee
2: Lutheran, which meant we would be playing or seeing Saint Catherine. It was a super close game, sixty-five to sixty-two. Actually, pretty high scoring, and this was in the day of no three-point no shot. No three pointers. Right? So, so we won. You know, and it was an amazing experience. And I know tears just started immediately because you know all the things we work for. It just yeah. was like, there. It's all coming back for me right now, which is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and then we got the trophy and all that, it was super cool. And we were in Madison, and it was about a three-hour ride back to Manitowoc. And it just so happened that the boys were playing. So the, the gym was packed. We were introduced at halftime, walked out, standing ovation. It was like, just super cool.
3: It was a real moment of validation For those of us that were there that felt like basketball was really important, and just imagine that group of us girls, but there were girls all over the country whose lives were changed forever by Patsy Mink, congressman, our representative Patsy Mink, and her congressional colleagues, and a president who together created our powerful Title IX movement. It was like the stars were just all lined up. It was pretty cool.
1: That was Barb barenbrook Loring and Sue Tringali-Johnson, formerly of Manitowoc. Their interviews were recorded at StoryCorps, a national initiative to record and collect stories of everyday people. Excerpts were selected and produced by Wisconsin Public Radio. Wisconsin Life is a co-production of WPR and PBS Wisconsin in partnership with Wisconsin Humanities. Additional support comes from Lowell and Mary Peterson of Appleton. I'm Tyler Ditter. This is Central Time. The Earth is over
0: 4.5 billion years old. But how do we know that? The answer, in large part, is geology. Our next guest is a Wisconsin scientist who says geology isn't just analyzing rocks. She says it's actually a form of time travel. Every rock, every landform tells us something about the long history of the place we find it in. We're finding out now what geology can tell us about the Earth's billions of years of history and how the current human-centric era is radically changing things You can join in at 800-642-1234. You have a favorite feature of Wisconsin's landscape. What do you want to know about our state billions of years into the past? Or today, join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email ideas at WPR.org. Marsha Bjornarud is the Walter Schober Professor of Environmental Studies and Professor of Geosciences at Lawrence University in Appleton. She's the author of books including Timefulness, How Thinking Like a Geologist Can Help Save the World. She's giving a talk this Sunday at 1130 a.m. at the Culver Community Park Shelter in Prairie du Sac for the Wisconsin Academy of Sciences, Arts and Letters to mark the end of the Wisconsin Science Festival. Marsha, thanks a lot for joining us today.
4: Thank you, Rob. I'm, I'm happy to be part of the show.
0: What do we mean by phrases like deep time and deep history?
4: Well, deep time is an evocative way of describing how geologists envision time as almost another dimension. I often do feel that I can in my mind's eye travel back <laughs> in geologic time through landscapes and rocks in Wisconsin to to certain times in the in the distant past and it does feel like another dimension. So I think it's just a good way of conceptualizing something that would otherwise be quite abstract.
0: I like to read uh, some science and a lot of science fiction. And when I look at, you know, four and a half billion years or six billion years at astronomy or whatever, I feel like my puny human brain just can't comprehend uh, time spans of that length as a geologist who thinks routinely uh, in, in those time frames. Does it ever get normal to you or does it ever feel overwhelming?
4: Well, I guess we get used to it. I can't say (laughs) that as a human being with a finite lifespan, I really can comprehend what a million years or a billion years mean. But I think rather than focusing simply on the numbers, but instead the stories, um, what has happened in those great spans of geologic time, start making one get some glimpse (laughs) of, of their magnitude the idea that the very geography of the planet has changed over and over, that there have been many different continental configurations, oceans that have come and gone, mountain belts that rose and were eroded away, then you start getting some sense of what billions of years means.
0: This is a pretty recent discovery, I think, in uh, human terms, uh, only over the last, what, century or two, maybe, we've figured out the Earth is that old. What were some of the signs, the evidence under our feet that started to point people to say, wait a minute, the Earth is a lot older than we've been thinking it is?
4: Yeah, you're right. I mean, the quantitative determination of the age of the Earth really emerged only in the nineteen. 30s or so, when people realized that radioactivity, a naturally occurring process, could be harnessed as a kind of timekeeper. Geologists had been working on developing the geologic timescale back as early as the early 1800s, but did not have a quantitative means of determining the age of the earth. They had some instinct in their bones that it must be on the order of hundreds of millions of years, but had no real way of, of proving that. And there were Many controversies between geologists and physicists who had different um, models for how the earth and the solar system had formed and geologists were in the main right about the, the great antiquity of the earth.
0: One of the themes of of your book, and I think of your talk this weekend, Marsha, is uh, how we can take that kind of time span and then turn it back to our lifespans as humans and uh, get a perspective uh, and understanding and maybe uh, do some good uh, on the planet for ourselves and and our our, uh, descendants. What kind of things can we learn that help us in the present day from taking this long view?
4: Well, first of all, since Earth is our home, few of us will ever leave and, and certainly will spend most of our lives here. Knowing how the planet works over different kinds of timescales is essential to living in a sustainable way on it. And arguably, many of the environmental problems we face today are the result of not thinking timefully, not thinking how our technological innovations would interact over decadal or century timescales with natural systems, um, burning fossil fuels that have been stored underground for millions of years um, in a matter of a few decades is (laughs) the prime, probably premier example. So there are certainly practical reasons. I think that geology is also interestingly a largely philosophical field because it's, it's about deep existential questions of how things came to be the way they are and the the past is not an arcane and irrelevant thing. It shapes the landscapes around us and having some sense of how things came to be as we know them today is, I think, a source of some kind of um, almost spiritual comfort.
0: Let's bring on a caller. Rory is with us in Chippewa Falls. Rory, hello. Hello. Uh, what do you wanna bring up, Rory? Uh, I
5: grew up in Barron County in Rice Lake in the east end of the county. It was the area I was told by more than one person that that's where the first land came up. But it was actually down in the southern part of the uh, planet. But now it's up uh, around the 45th parallel or so, or 47th maybe.
0: Rory, thanks a lot for the call. I hadn't heard that, Marcia, uh, a piece of Wisconsin prehistory there. Uh, How would we figure that out uh, if uh, part of Barron County was some of the first land to emerge from the water?
4: Well, Barron County does have some very old rocks, including the Barron Quartzite, that is probably a kind of sister formation to the Baraboo Quartzite in, in the Devil's Lake State Park area and the Baraboo Ranges. Um, it's old, uh, probably around 1.6 or 7 billion years old, but it's not the oldest um, emergent land, um, even in Wisconsin. So we have remarkably old rocks. In parts of the state, um, we are actually a state with remarkable geodiversity. People may have the idea of biodiversity, um, you know, many different species living in a place. Well, we have many different rock types of many different ages. And um, the, the Barron County Rice Lake area is kind of a microcosm of that. There are some relatively youngish rocks, only 500 million years old. And then there's the barren Quartzite that's a billion years older than that. Um, so, yeah, old, but but not the oldest.
0: Rory, thanks a lot for that call. We're finding out what geology can teach us about the nature of time. Our guest is Marsha Bjornrud, professor of environmental studies and professor of geosciences at Lawrence University, speaking at an event in Prairie du Sac this Sunday. You can join the conversation at 800-642-1234. Do you ever try to... F- Think about that, just how old this planet is, how it's changed, and how features have emerged. And are there things that uh, you love to see, natural formations in Wisconsin or beyond? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. We'll pick up the conversation coming up next on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. We're talking about what geology can teach us about the nature of time and the planet we live on. Our guest is Marsha Bjornarud, professor of environmental studies and professor of geosciences at Lawrence University. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you have a favorite? geological formation something landscape here in wisconsin do you have a question for our guest join in at 800-642-1234 that's 800-642-1234 marcia i'll admit to having had the misconception at various points that you know geology is about rocks but as i as i read more and hear more about it Uh, It's amazing how much life, life forms have influenced uh, our landscapes, our land forms, our geological history on the planet. Can you talk a little bit about uh, how much geology is a story about life as well?
4: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And there's a growing understanding that Earth and life have co-evolved, that um, it's not simply that Earth was the right distance from the sun and we had water, which were prerequisites for life getting a toehold. but Ever since it did, it has been actively modifying this planet um, for at least 3.8 billion years. And perhaps the most dramatic example of that is that um, microbes transformed a volcano-breath atmosphere of pure carbon dioxide and some water vapor, similar to what we would see on Mars or Venus, into this wonderful oxygenated atmosphere that we enjoy today. And in fact, some of the rocks we have in northern Wisconsin, the the banded iron formation up in the Gogebic range, record that transition from a world with no oxygen in the atmosphere to one in which there was at least some O2 free oxygen um, in the atmosphere. And that happened about two billion years ago, thanks to microbes.
0: Now looking at Wisconsin's uh, geological history, uh, somebody put a map online where you could pick a date and said, hey, if you're on this spot and time traveled back X amount of years, here's what your place would look like. And what I learned from that is if you did that in Wisconsin, you probably should have a boat, right? <laughs> Wisconsin was underwater for a lot of geological history. How, how much uh, How much was Wisconsin influenced by just being a sea, part of an ocean?
4: That's right. So there are many versions of Wisconsin, and I think you're talking about the long period from what we would call the Cambrian through Devonian time, that would be from about 500 million to maybe 380 million years ago, so that would be a period of about 120 million years, over which most of the time Wisconsin was a sort of um, continental shelf setting. The continent itself was smaller and also sea level was higher. And um, the rocks that we know from the southern two thirds of the state, the sandstones and the um, limestones, shale, dolomite, these stratified rocks are all records of that long period of time. So yes, you would have needed a boat. At other times you might have needed some sort of protective gear from volcanic eruptions. (laughs) Um, You would have been in the midst of great mountains that existed. So there are many, many Wisconsin's represented in our rock record
0: let's bring out another caller at 800-642-1234 gwen is with us in horicon gwen hi
1: hello thanks for
0: talking yeah what did you want to ask about gwen Uh,
1: well we live in the horicon area and our property actually sits on part of the niagara escarpment and most people don't even understand what that is and i think it would be great if she talked about it a little bit
0: all right, uh, Marcia introduced us to, uh, I guess, Gwen's front yard, the Niagara Escarpment.
4: Gwen, I'm so glad you brought that up. We we here in Appleton also are pretty close to the escarpment. Um, so the escarpment is a a step in the landscape that um, represents sort of the the edge of a big bowl that's the size of all of Lower Michigan and beyond. So there's a a geological feature called the Michigan Basin, which you can think of as a bowl-shaped feature. And the rocks all around the bowl tilt very gently in toward the middle. And as erosion has acted on these stratified rocks, these sedimentary rocks we were just talking about, the soft ones have eroded away more easily than the hard ones. And the, the thing that really defines the escarpment is the really resistant tough Silurian dolostone, and it's underlined, lain by a much softer shale that just is not up to, <laughs> standing up to erosion or glaciers. And so everywhere you see that contact between the weak shale and the strong dolostone, stone, that's the escarpment. And in fact, it's the same feature that Niagara Falls, falls over way over in New York and Ontario. It's just that here we don't have one Great Lake draining into the other, but it's, it's the same landscape feature that can be traced all around um, the upper great lakes region
0: gwen thanks a lot for the call marshall one quirk as an understand it of geological history that probably disappoints a lot of kids we don't seem to discover a lot of dinosaur fossils in wisconsin that doesn't mean they weren't here but uh what happened so that we don't seem to find a lot of them here
4: Right, so that's, we have a long and wonderful history, but we do not have Jurassic and Cretaceous rocks in Wisconsin. Um, So that, times when there is no rock record preserved means we were high and dry and, and exposed to erosion. So most sedimentary rocks are in fact marine sediments, and most dinosaurs were walking around on land. So during times when areas are above sea level, it's much less likely that rocks will be preserved into the geologic record.
0: Time for one more caller. Mitch is with us in Madison. Mitch, hello. Sure.
1: Hi. Let me turn down my radio. I have a question. So the
0: original life form, or certainly one of the oldest life forms we know of, is the cyanobacteria, right? 3.8 billion years old. And when we have these outbreaks now in
3: our lakes where those beaches aren't safe, cyanobacteria. And
5: I'm curious if it's like, is that the same organism?
0: Mitch, uh, thanks for the call. Yeah, cyanobacteria—we uh, call it blue-green algae. Though I think it's not really algae. Marcia, is that? I don't know. Is that a close cousin of some of the earliest life forms on Earth?
4: Yeah, he's right. Absolutely. The the things that oxygenated the atmosphere were probably ancient ancestors of modern cyanobacteria. Certainly, they they have evolved, but um, e- essentially they're they're similar to the very first photosynthetic organisms on Earth. Um, today, they can be a problem if they're proliferating and, and um, you know overwhelming other microbial communities in, in our lakes and rivers. But they should be respected, I guess, for bringing us this beautiful oxygenated atmosphere.
0: Mitch, thanks a lot for the call. Marsha, we mentioned that talk coming up on Sunday in just our last few moments. Uh, what is the main point you're hoping to bring to people?
4: Well, it's called a celebration of time and it's sponsored by the wisconsin academy of sciences arts and letters as well as um, the wisconsin science festival as you mentioned and badger history group i just learned unfortunately that the in-person event is sold out oh, okay but anyone can um, join online just go to the wisconsin academy website and it's free to register um, i'll be speaking about the deep geologic history of wisconsin and then um, John Deer, who's the new president of the Ho-Chunk Nation, will also be speaking about the very long, rich human history of the Baraboo Hills um, region and the Badger um, Army Ammunition Site and the rec- reclamation of that site.
0: Marsha, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us.
4: Thank you, Rob.
0: Marsha Bjernerud is the Walter Schober Professor of Environmental Studies and Geosciences at Lawrence University in Appleton. We'll get a link up so you can see that talk online at WPR.org centraltime Central Time so you can see that Wisconsin Academy link and, and watch online. Coming up tomorrow on Central Time, phone etiquette has changed a lot. Should you text before calling? Should you leave voicemail, talk on speakerphone in a crowded place? We'll tackle those questions and more. That's tomorrow here on Central Time. Coming up after the news, bottled water is big business, but there's a lot of pushback over costs, plastic pollution, and more. We'll talk to the author of the new book, Unbottled, the fight against plastic water and for water justice. I'm Rob Ferrett. This is Central Time on the Ideas Network. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Barrett. You're with us here on the Ideas Network. Bottled water is a $300 billion global industry and the most consumed packaged drink worldwide. For many Americans, bottled water has become part of our everyday lives. But That's a pretty recent trend that has grown over the past few decades. Not that long ago, it was a punchline.
1: Drink the bottled water. I feel silly buying it, though.
0: I'm just maybe I'm just too Midwestern, you know, it's like, Whenever I go in a store, I'm always like, hey,
4: how you doing?
0: Yeah, I know I can get water free from any faucet, but I wanna pay for it. I'm just curious, do you have any air back there? Can I buy your garbage? do you think about it, it is water, right? How did we get to the point where we're paying for bottled water? That must have been some weird marketing meeting over in France,
4: you know? Let's just tell the Americans the water's from France. (laughs) We bought it.
0: That's comedian Jim Gaffigan doing a stand-up routine back in 2000. So why now do so many Americans spend billions of dollars each year on bottled water? In a new book, our next guest digs into that question and says that bottled water is part of a deeper story of the environment, inequality, and the commodification of a public service. You can join us at 800-642-1234. Do you drink tap or bottled water at home? Do you buy bottled water when you're dining out or traveling? Have you switched over to carrying a reusable bottle? And uh, were you part of the story a couple decades back when Perrier looked to bottle water here in Wisconsin? Big, long controversy there. You can join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Daniel Jaffe is Associate Professor of Sociology at Portland State University, where he researches the social, environmental, and economic impacts of bottled and packaged water. His new book is called Unbottled, The Fight Against Plastic Water and For Water Justice. Daniel, thanks a lot for joining us today.
5: Thanks, Rob. It's great to be here.
0: Before we dig into the story behind bottled water, I don't know if people really realize the scope and the change uh, that's happened. I remember when... You know, it was kind of like a joke where, oh, you've got a glass bottle of Perrier. Ooh, fancy. And now it's this dominant product. Can you talk about the rapid rise?
5: Sure. Well, I start the book with a story of saying I'm, I confess that I'm old enough to remember a time when I was in grade school in the 1980s when, uh, you know, a pl- single serve plastic bottle water was really not a, a product that anybody had thought of yet. Mm-hmm. Um, 1980, Americans consumed just two gallons per person per year on average. And it was pretty much as the comedian said, Perrier and heavy glass bottles, uh, thought of as kind of an odd product. And somehow, we got from that to just over 40 years later, later, Americans consuming 47-plus gallons per person per year on average, Uh, 90% almost of Americans consuming some bottled water, and Really surprisingly, one in five Americans um, refusing the tap entirely when it comes to drinking water and getting all of their drinking water uh, from packaged bottles. And so, in researching this book, I was looking into that riddle of how we got there, Um, and I found just you know to sort of preview that bottled water turns out to not just be kind of a controversial product, which also has a lot of negative environmental impacts that many might be familiar with. But it it turns out, and I was surprised to find how. Deeply connected it is to the um, the social injustice and inequality crisis of uneven access to safe and affordable water, both here in the U.S. Uh, and around the world.
0: I wanted to dig into that big picture, this idea, this debate you set out almost uh, at the beginning. Uh is water a commodity that I can make money by selling in bottles or in other ways versus is water a public right or a public good that uh, we should take the profit motive out of? Uh, could you talk about how that, that conversation has changed over the last few decades?
5: Yeah. So beginning, you know, and the the form in which many people are more familiar with that struggle, that struggle over water should be primarily a human right or a commodity um, provided by the market Um, has first sort of came to people's mind and awareness in terms of struggles over whether uh, the provision of public tap water should be privatized in places around the world, um, from Bolivia to um, Indonesia to uh, cities here in the U.S. um, uh, Private water companies began uh, taking over the provision of drinking water, and there were a lot of opposition movements that formed um, in response uh private companies taking over a, an essential service and um, water rates would tend to rise and there were contentions around the quality of the service um and a lot of backlash and it turns out that um while there was a big push for private tap water provision there is a counter movement a strong kind of a counterwind uh the the re-municipalization of many of those systems has taken place where they've come back into public hands. But I think what's gotten less attention is this other major form of what some would call the privatization of of drinking water, which is the rise of bottled and and packaged water in in different forms around the world. And it's sort of growth into a global industry, as you say, it passing $300 billion. And I think that it turns out to generate its own kind of opposition movements there's been less attention to it but i think that it is set to very quickly become the largest the fastest growing and the most significant form of the privatization or the or the as you say the commodification of drinking water
0: one big development that's turned out to be one of the big problems in bottled water is lightweight plastic can you talk about this technological development that really yeah. made it so relatively cheap to ship lots and lots of little bottles of water
5: Yes, it uh, <laughs> turns out that the the industry was experimenting with plastic water bottles as far back as 1969, uh, uh, actually, but it wasn't until the early 90s that they sort of cracked the code of making this lightweight PET plastic easily producible and. Um, you know, so the conversion to PET plastic, that number one plastic lightweight bottles began. And I think if you remember back to the 90s, those who were around, suddenly, it seemed like everything was being sold in plastic instead of glass. And PET really was the development, the technological development that allowed the industry to mass produce this product, and um, production and consumption grew very rapidly. And then bottled water became very big business and the big food and beverage companies got involved. And so not coincidentally in the nineties when it was also when you saw the big soda makers, Pepsi and Coke get into the business with Dasani and Aquafina um, and they and Nestle uh, and Dannon began buying up smaller bottlers around the country and around the world. Um, and the those four firms, the big four, I call them, um, have led the market both here at
0: home and around the world uh, ever since talking to Daniel Jaffe about his new book unbottled the fight against plastic water and for water justice you can join in at 800-642-1234 with your thoughts or questions Daniel one big point here with with the early days of bottled water it was like oh this is fancy stuff from a spring you know artesian wells whatever that's not mostly what we're drinking in the United States where is our water when we buy that bottle of water where is it usually coming from
5: right so the packaging uh, portrays usually pristine springs or lakes and a snow-clad mountain in the background, but in reality, um, over the last few decades, the makeup of bottled water has shifted to the point where in the U.S. now, only just a little over a third of bottled water comes from groundwater at all, springs or any other form, and almost two-thirds, something like 63% of bottled water sold on the shelves, um, is taken simply from Municipal water systems from the city water systems in different communities. It is taken out, uh, refiltered. The companies strip out the mineral content, and then they add their own sort of proprietary mineral mixes, which you know give it their trademark taste so that, you know, for example, Dasani would taste the same in Wisconsin as it would in New York State and California, um, which I think incidentally has probably contributed to training people's palates and maybe is one of the reasons why some people express dissatisfaction with the taste of their tap water. Um, But so, yes, the vast majority of bottled water in the U.S. now is coming actually simply from public tap systems, but it is, of course, being sold for either hundreds to thousands of times the cost. And I, and I will add that on on top of the cost difference, the environmental impact is, is quite significant. Um, one study calculated that bottled water's energy impact is about 1,000 to 2,000 times higher per gallon than providing tap water. And then the overall environmental impact and counting all different factors is somewhere between newer study, somewhere between 1,400 and 3,500 times higher. So it is a product with a very big uh, ecological footprint. And that's not even to mention the plastic waste crisis uh, on, on a global level.
0: Let's mention that plastic uh, issue. Now, I think we th- we might think, okay, I buy that plastic bottle, I drink it, I drop it in the bin, gets recycled, it'll show up in the next bottle of water. Mm-hmm. Uh, you did find it uh, in water uh, on the shores, I think in Thailand, Daniel, that this is mm-hmm. a big plastic problem, these single-use bottles.
5: Yeah, I mean, that was my first exposure to this really this global uh, disaster i think the ecological disaster of single-use plastic pollution just in a, a place where the shore off of an island was was coated in a floating mass of pl- plastic mostly bottles but other garbage as well for several hundred feet out um, but it turns out that globally people are consuming between 600 and 700 billion single-use plastic bottles of all beverages but because bottled water is by far the top selling Packaged beverage around the world, it contributes the largest share to that Marine waste problem. And one study found that bottles and their caps, the beverage bottles and their caps are the number one Marine garbage item. Another study found that they accounted for almost 50% of all Marine waste. So dealing with the global single use plastics issue, um, really requires dealing with the problem of, uh, single use beverages, but also particularly packaged water, and um, the U.S. recycling rate is actually quite low for these bottles. It's gone down over the years. It's down to about 26% of bottles were recycled. Most of those do not get turned into new bottles. Only something like 7 to 10% do. The rest are sort of what's called downcycled. They become you know, carpets or whatever, less uh, high-quality products. And around the world,
0: the bottle recycling rate is much lower. It's something like 7 to 9%. Talking to Daniel Jaffe about his new book, Unbottled, The Fight Against Plastic Water and For Water Justice. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you avoid plastic water bottles? What led you to do that if so? Or are they uh, more convenient? Do you maybe trust it more than the tap water at your home or place of work? What questions do you have about the rise of this bottled water industry Join in at 800-642-1234, that's 800-642-1234, or email ideas at wpr.org. We'll continue the conversation coming up here on Central Time. It's Central Time, I'm Rob Ferrett. We're picking up the conversation with Daniel Jaffe about the bottled water industry and his new book, Unbottled, The Fight Against Plastic Water and For Water Justice. You can join in at 800 642 One, two, three, four. Let's bring on a caller now. Christina is with us in Glenwood City. Christina, hi.
1: Hi there. Thank you. I, more often than not, I get my water uh, in glass bottles, spring water. I want to confirm that when it says spring water, is that, in fact, spring water and not purified? Christina, thanks
0: for the call. Daniel, you write in the book that uh, regulations, especially if water doesn't cross state lines, uh are non-existent or vague uh, at best
5: right well about the question of spring water labeling the fda so bottled water it's worth noting is treated as a foodstuff and it's regulated by the food and drug administration the fda the fda does have specific regulations about what can be called spring water it's fairly liberal uh it can involve getting groundwater in many different ways um Whether companies are abiding by those regulations, I I have no way of knowing. But uh, there is at least a legal definition that they have to uh, be held to. But in contrast to FDA regulation of bottled water, um, the uh, regulation of tap water systems, our public tap water is um, falls under the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. And, you know, it's worth noting that the difference between those two, I I sort of say, is effectively the difference between night and day. there's a a pretty dramatically uneven playing field between the bottled water industry and um, public tap water providers in terms of the regulatory uh, structures they're under, not so much in terms of the contaminants that they're allowed to have. They're held to roughly the same maximum levels of contaminants, but um, EPA regulation is far more rigorous. Tap water utilities have to test their water more often uh, and have to critically report to the public when they find contamination. Uh, almost immediately and also publish annual reports. Whereas bottled water companies, the concern is that they uh, test the water themselves. The FDA does inspect plants, but it has a diminishing number of inspectors. And there's been some interesting reporting on this by um, Consumer Reports and other outlets looking at the weakness of the bottled water regulatory regime. Overall, it's very very unlikely that consumers will find out if and when the, the bottled water they're consuming has contamination- found. Um, On top of that, I'll just add one more thing around bottled water safety, uh, which is that uh, peer-reviewed academic studies have found recently that um, bottled water contains higher levels of microplastic fragments. And one academic study found that somebody consuming only bottled water uh, would uh, consume 22 times more microplastic fragments than someone who consumed only tap water. So there there is a difference in the regulation and, and
0: in what the, and what they contain. Christina, thanks for the call. Mike joins us now in Hudson. Mike, hi. Yeah, hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, yeah, two things to note. I guess, one, I've always had a strong preference of things out of a glass versus plastic.
5: So I've not ever been an adopter of the plastic bottle cons- consumer part. But the other question I have is how much of an impact are these water refilling stations having? I just traveled abroad to the UK and Ireland, and I was surprised to not see very many of them.
0: Mike, thanks for the call. Daniel, these, you read about this in the book. These have sprung up uh, in a lot of places. Have these water refilling stations changed uh, sales of bottled water?
5: So I'm going to assume that the caller is talking about refilling points, uh, water refilling uh, points like water fountains. In, in other words, getting your top water out of a, a water refiller. Um, in in that case, so that is a, uh, a, a it's really happening um, in a lot of the, uh, the 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 wealthy nations and spreading around the world. The sort of the increasing what I call the reclaiming the tap segment of the movements responding to bottled water's growth, and that is a really fascinating kind of constellation of efforts that have happened between city governments on nonprofit organizations, universities, other public and private institutions um, the last decade or more to sort of turn back to tap water cities saying, hey, you know, we are the providers of this tap water and we know it's really clean. And what does it make any sense for us to be purchasing bottled water for our city government offices or allowing it to be sold, say, on city property and public parks and a growing number of cities, large ones from San Francisco to L.A. to New York and others um, but a lot of small communities counties around the country and and really around you know u.s canada europe and beyond are are um starting to uh, uh enact bans on purchasing or selling bottled water on city property um and then the flip side that sort of required two-step dance that they do if they ban it in some places is to then expand access to clean of public tap water, free public tap water in public places. And I think that's one of the most interesting and, and dynamic parts of what's going on is these uh, communities are rolling out shiny new, hundreds of shiny new uh, hydration stations, wa- public water fountains, refill points, and then private businesses are getting in on the act. Um, there are networks where, where businesses have wa- have stickers in their windows. There are apps. One uh, big app is called the Refill app. Comes a nonprofit group based in the UK, but it now has it's gone global. It has three hundred thousand refilling points on its app, so you can like look to find out what the nearest place you can get a free refill. Sometimes it's in a coffee shop that won't make you buy anything; they'll just give you free water, and that's sort of taking off as a a movement. And it has actually gotten the attention of the bottled water industry, and they are concerned. I do a lot of reading of market literature and market reports and um, the industry is concerned and they say particularly young folks but but across the board people turning back to the tap is making a dent in sales um i just looked at the latest statistics last week in the u.s um for the first time since the great recession bottled water consumption actually fell by one report by one percent and that's new and i think at least some of that change owes to um, these movements that are taking interest in, um, reclaiming the tap, uh, I quote, one uh, representative, uh, from a bottled water company. Who told a conference quote, the, the water bottle has in some ways become the mink coat or the pack of cigarettes. It's socially not very acceptable to the young folks. And that scares me, unquote. So, uh, the industry is alert to this and, and they are concerned.
0: Mike, thanks for the call. Daniel, in our last couple minutes, another part of the story I want to get into, you looked at the, the water crisis in Flint, Michigan and some other places, mm-hmm. some of the bottled water marketing material, internal material you mentioned talks about, hey, this is maybe a growth opportunity if people don't yeah. trust your trust their water, and you worry that that's going to lead maybe to uh, dis- lack of trust in municipal water and disinvestment in public water supplies. Can you uh, take our last couple minutes and talk about
5: that? Yeah, that's very important. Um, so- a counter trend to what I just described, this sort of turning back to the tap among um, people in communities that have the privilege of, you know, high quality tap water, which is the vast majority of U.S. drinking water utilities, by the way, but a small percentage, very small, seven, 8% at the absolute most of U.S. water systems do have um, some water quality health related violation within any given year. And those problems are not evenly distributed. They tend to fall disproportionately in certain kinds of communities, low-income communities, rural communities, and overwhelmingly communities um, with uh, uh, predominantly populations of people of color, African-Americans and Latinos in particular. And those, it turns out, are the social groups who also um, distrust their tap water the most and who have turned to buying bottled and packaged water the most and um the industry is is aware of this and so what we actually now have i think is and and, and rather than sort of say people are misinterpreting because obviously if 20% of people are not drinking tap water, uh, but it's only, you know, 7% or 8% of the systems have a violation. Some people are turning away from perfectly good water. But rather than say there's a misperception, I think we could see that as a, a logical reading of the uneven distribution of risks. And so um, I argue that, um, you know, when we have, uh, I think that bottled water is in, in these communities is serving to increase economic and racial inequalities, sort of between the clean water haves and have nots. And I think we're only going to really be able to resolve this distrust problem and the deterioration problem from underfunding of public water systems by restoring that federal role, federal government used to fund it at a much higher level, going back to strong federal funding that will bring up the quality and restore the quality of water systems across the board so that everyone will view tap water, once again, as trustworthy.
0: Daniel, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us today. Thanks so much, Rob. That's Daniel Jaffe, associate professor of sociology at Portland State University. We've been talking about his latest book, Unbottled, The Fight Against Plastic Water and for Water Justice. Still time for you to share your thoughts over on the Ideas Network Facebook page. You can follow these conversations all the time, anytime online at WPR.org, stream live or check out or share archived copies of conversations here on Wisconsin Public Radio. You can also download the Wisconsin Public Radio app. I'm Rob Ferret. You're listening to Central Time here on the Ideas Network.